This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm really excited to talk to you today about what do we know about long COVID and dilemmas. And we're going to take a whirlwind tour in this hour and have plenty of time for questions. I don't have anything to disclose. Before we dive into the content, I just wanted to take a quick moment to acknowledge the tremendous toll that this pandemic has had on all of our lives. Um, I think many of us have been affected personally or know friends or families who've been affected, know patients who've been affected. And it is something that is a true national and international tragedy, this pandemic. Just yesterday was the one year anniversary of this New York Times front page. I remember when I saw it, my uh, eyes immediately went to somewhere in the middle of the page here where there was somebody listed from my small hometown in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And I sobbed when I saw this front page. And it's unbelievable that a year later, we're at nearly 600,000 lives lost just in the US alone, let alone speaking of you know, the international tragedy that's going on right now in India, South Asia, and South America. So I just wanted to spend a moment to just acknowledge the magnitude of that loss. The good news is that as people have talked about, the pandemic is down but not out. Every day I check the SF Chronicle, which has this amazing California tracker, which talks about the statistics. And it's wonderful to see the Bay Area and California continuing to have very low case positive rates and percent positive rates. And then I always check the New York Times tracker too for the national trend. And it's wonderful to see this line going down and the vaccine tracker steadily taking up. I think one thing that these statistics don't really show you though, is that recovery from COVID is not black and white. It's not just life and death. And no two people have the same COVID recovery. And I'm going to share with you stories about long COVID and how patients can be affected for even months after the acute infection. I think a lot has been described about the effects of COVID on different organ systems throughout the body in the acute setting, in the immediate setting. So it's not just a pulmonary, a lung condition, but it also affects the heart, the GI tract, your kidneys, your immune system, neurological system, mental health, and even the reproductive system. And increasingly, we're recognizing too that COVID is affecting the organs in a long-term way. Again, not just the lungs where you can see chronically low levels of oxygen in some patients or lung scarring or clotting issues or issues with the heart like cardiomyopathy or myocarditis, inflammation of the heart and its surroundings, neurological issues like strokes and cognitive impairment, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, PTSD, and neuromuscular issues like persistent taste and smell abnormalities or even paresthesias, tingling. And we also see that a subset of people also seem to have um, a certain different type of presentation. For some people, it's waxing and waning. It comes and goes. They experience almost like flare-ups. They have a lot of fatigue. Again, those paresthesias, the tingling, cognitive impairment that's described as brain fog, shortness of breath, and palpitations. And a lot of these symptoms have been called long COVID or post-acute sequelae of COVID. PASC doesn't quite roll off the tongue. So we're going to dive into this a little bit more in the next hour. We've introduced where COVID fits in the landscape, long COVID fits. 
And we're going to talk about what is long COVID, who gets it, what is the biology behind it, and spend the majority of the time talking about how do we treat it. And we will definitely have time for what I hope to be an active Q&A. So first, I wanted to start actually with a message from patients themselves. So we're going to pause for a brief video here. We're all members of a club no one wanted to join. Different backgrounds, ages, experiences. Thousands and thousands of us have been struggling for weeks and months with ongoing symptoms of COVID-19. These are some common symptoms, but there are many more. Some of us have been ill throughout, with others having relapses. We're still very ill. We're feeling pressure to return to work, to care for families and get back to normal when we still feel anything but. No one seems to be able to answer our questions or give reassurance. Will we ever get better? Will there be long-term repercussions for our physical and mental health? Is this post-viral fatigue or are we still infectious? Will I be able to do the things that make me happy again? Can we hug our loved ones or will we make them sick? Is this damage irreversible? Am I going to die? We just don't know. So we're sending out an SOS. Each of us has our own journey, but lots of us are feeling abandoned, dismissed, brushed off, ignored, and given conflicting advice. It can be hard for those around us to understand how ill we are. It's confusing and scary. Our numbers are growing and we need to be taken seriously. We need rehab, research and recognition. We need to be believed, helped, treated with compassion and supported by those around us. Please hear our SOS. Um, that is a very powerful video talking about the experience of patients. That video was actually made in July of 2020 when this term long COVID was just coming into fruition. And we've learned a lot about how to help our patients since then. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I wanted to start with the voice of the patients because this term long COVID really is a patient and a patient community generated term. It was coined by Dr. Elisa Perego almost about a year ago exactly on May 20th of 2020 by a single tweet from a person who, was, who felt that she was not recovering. And that single tweet really snowballed into this patient-generated movement to advocate for treatment, rehab, research. You heard all of those that they were talking about. I think early in the COVID pandemic, people thought, oh, this is just like any other viral illness. This is just like the flu. And there was a lot of skepticism initially. And I think now there's a huge body of research that's showing our patients, we believe them, we value them, and we're here to help. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. So this is one of the earliest studies that came out. This was from Carfi and colleagues in Italy in early 2020. And this was one of the first studies that gave us the sense that there are acute symptoms, fatigue, dyspnea, shortness of breath, joint pain, chest pain, 
But then there are chronic symptoms that actually persist up to 20, 40, even 60 days afterwards, predominantly fatigue and shortness of breath. This graphic is also important because it'll bring up a theme that I'll return to throughout this talk, which is, quote, all that long hauls isn't COVID. What I mean by that is you see some here uncommon complaints that persist chronically. Diarrhea, for example. So it's true that some patients with COVID can have acute diarrhea and then chronic diarrhea. However, my general advice and philosophy to both patients and providers alike is that you shouldn't assume something is, quote, just long COVID, and you should treat it just like a brand new medical issue. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I saw a patient who was told that he had diarrhea probably just from COVID. And in fact, after we got a colonoscopy and a full evaluation, he actually had a new diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. So it's stories like this that um, and graphics like this, the research that really shows us that some symptoms can persist, others should be kind of treated almost as new issues and thought about that way. So this was the first big study that came out, and it was criticized appropriately saying, hey, this is just one single center in Italy. Um, there was no control group, right? It wasn't compared to people recovering from the flu, et cetera. So let's talk about the research that came after that. So now, since then, newer and larger studies have really corroborated this, both in hospitalized patients, like that Italian study, as well as in non-hospitalized patients. This is a pretty recent study by Logan colleagues in JAMA that came out, and they looked at the whole spectrum of patients, mild, moderate, and severe, and they found this percentage that had persistent symptoms. And you can see here that people can have persistent symptoms even after mild illness, even if they were not hospitalized. And again, you see familiar concepts recurring, fatigue, loss of taste or smell, trouble breathing, cough, feeling feverish and tired, even with both mild illness in the dark green, as well as with severe illness in the light green. What about that criticism of being compared to influenza? We're not gonna go over this slide in detail, but this is a very well done paper published in Nature um, looking at a very large patient population in the, our veterans affairs system, our VA system, finding again that even if you compared veterans with COVID to veterans recovering some from, say, from influenza or another infection, you saw more of these persistent symptoms, again, across multiple different organ systems than you would compared to if somebody just had, say, influenza. And then what about in the Bay Area? We also have studies corroborating this. This is my colleague, Dr. Mike Peluso. He, his name is going to come up a bunch in the chat in this talk tonight. And because he runs the LINK study in the Bay Area, the Long-Term Outcomes of Coronavirus Study. And that is a study based out of ZSFG, the General Hospital in San Francisco, that looks at patients, not just clinically, but also from a biomarker perspective, from an immunological perspective, and is following patients over time. They've seen over 300 patients and they've documented and kind of reiterated the same finding where you have some patients with fatigue, fevers, chills that can persist weeks, even months afterwards. And again, those are both hospitalized patients as well as patients who are never hospitalized. So what is the kind of accepted definition of long COVID or, or past post-acute sequelae of COVID? The jury is still a little bit out 
But the generally accepted definition is people who have persistent symptoms after four weeks. So this is a nice review from the journal Nature, and it shows how kind of week one to week two, that's really the acute symptoms where people are still, you can actively culture virus from their respiratory tract. Um, and then chronically after week four, some people were, are going to have persistent subacute or ongoing symptoms. Again, in different organ systems, you see general fatigue, lungs, brain, cardiac, uh, blood clots, thromboembolism, chronic kidney disease, and even hair loss up to, up to three months to even six months afterwards. So the generally accepted definition is persistent symptoms after four weeks, but you'll see as we'll talk about different studies kind of use different thresholds, which makes it really challenging to compare apples to apples when we're reading the scientific literature or even the popular press. The other thing that makes it really challenging is that symptoms are not necessarily always correlated or equal to organ dysfunction or at least organ dysfunction that we can measure. And what that means is that you have people who may be really severely ill, even critically ill on death's door, on a ventilator, paralyzed, flipped over onto their bellies in the prone position. And a couple of weeks afterwards, sometimes I'll see them in clinic and they'll be remarkably unscathed, walking around doing well. And then on the flip side of that, sometimes I'll see patients who, again, were never hospitalized, but are having persistent, disabling chest pain, shortness of breath, fatigue, um, despite having you know, a normal chest x-ray, say, or a normal echocardiogram, an ultrasound of the heart. And again, is it that our tools are still too crude to measure kind of microscopic organ dysfunction? Could it be things that we can't measure, like underlying inflammation that's going on? Could there be, as we like to say in medicine, a multifactorial explanation? Could there just be lots of things contributing? It's still early to tell, and different people are going to respond differently. So this is an active area of research why um, every single person kind of has a different presentation later, and it's very humbling. And that's why the treatment and diagnosis really need to be very individualized. So that was a little bit about what is the definition of long COVID. Let's talk about who gets long COVID. I think one thing to know, as we've alluded to, is that patients can traverse multiple contexts of healthcare. They could be in the ICU, in the intensive care unit, really critically ill. They could be in the regular hospital ward, perhaps requiring oxygen, but not quite critically ill. They could be outpatients just seen in clinic or urgent care or in the ER. Or they could be people like in the case of many who are in, say, New York in early March, who just kind of toughed it out at home. They were too sick and too afraid to even go to the ER, so they just went home. And some patients didn't even get testing at that time because there was so much fear around it. The other thing to bring up is that racial and ethnic disparities persist really at every single level. This is underlying you know, the, the social political context that we live in with racism, social class, and social stratification. I'm particularly re reminded of that today. This is the one year anniversary of the murder of Mr. George Floyd. And you know, one year later, we have seen that COVID-19 is a pandemic that has really brutally and starkly exacerbated existing racial disparities in healthcare. And we've seen that in a number of different ways, whether it's pre-disease conditions that increase your risk of getting COVID, such as essential workers being predominantly people of color, or people living in multi-generational family homes being people of color, or issues with care access, 
having access to care, insurance, income, occupation, language barriers, comorbidities, bias in the healthcare system, housing issues. And then those disparities persist at discharge. Um, you know, thinking about, again, where are you able to go for discharge? What about long-term care? What resources do you have at home? What is your ability to access health, telehealth in the era of the digital divide? And so all of these issues really compound the existing racial disparities, and we have a lot of work to do. My colleague, Dr. Nita Talker, who's at the General, has written this wonderful article talking about the racial disparities in COVID-19 that I think should be really required reading for any policymaker or person who's thinking about COVID-19. I think another key point I'd like to bring up is that there really is no one long COVID. As I mentioned, each patient is really unique and there are some common symptom clusters that we'll talk about. But uh, you know, earlier on this pandemic, somebody approached me, um, a very well-meaning scientist kind of tech person said, why do people even need post-COVID or long-COVID clinics? Can't we just link them with an app that will kind of say, hey, you have shortness of breath, do this. You have chest pain, do this. And the trick is every single patient is really different. Um, an elderly, frail, 75-year-old patient who is in the ICU is going to be really different than your previously healthy marathon runner who now has disabling fatigue and chest pain. And you can't treat those two individuals the same. The other challenge of determining kind of who gets long COVID, I mentioned that we're treating long COVID often when you talk about it or read about it as one single condition. But in reality, there's actually these clusters of symptoms that we'll talk about. And in some cases, some people may have individual symptoms that need targeted therapy. For example, the loss of smell, anosmia. Some people are totally recovered, but oh my goodness, they still can't smell. And so for them, you're gonna, work with them to think about olfactory or smell rehab. How do they get their sense of smell back through smell retraining rather than just, again, having a blanket prescription. One size does not fit all. I think the other challenge is that, as I mentioned, the literature is really difficult to interpret because you have studies where they're comparing hospitalized patients to non-hospitalized or a combo. You have studies where they're looking at that four-week definition. Sometimes they're looking out to three to six months. You have studies where the recruitment strategies are different. I mentioned COVID SOS, which was a COVID patient support group. Um, if you're recruiting samples, if you're recruiting patients from a support group, that's a different population than a, patient, than a, a sample of patients that you're recruiting from a hospital, which is a different sample of patients that you're recruiting from a clinic. So each of those have different types of bias and confounders to be aware of. Uh, symptomatic versus asymptomatic, it's sometimes tricky to compare those. And then participant sizes. So because of that, the long COVID literature is a little bit all over the place. Some studies say you have a 2 to 3% prevalence, and some studies say you have a 90% prevalence. So clearly the truth is somewhere in between. Um, this, is, this graphic is taken from the NIHR, not the NIH, but the NIH research in the UK. And they have this really nice living systematic review that they call it's actually written in a nice, easy, public-facing audience. I encourage you all to check it out. It's freely accessible and um, is really helpful to look at. So what are these symptom clusters that I'm mentioning? So Huang and colleagues analyzed a bunch of patients and tried to group their symptoms into different clusters. And they found, and this actually tracks definitely with my, myself and my colleagues' anecdotal experiences, that some patients fall into these clusters, but there are of course more too. 
Uh, some people have a lot of dyspnea, shortness of breath and cough. Some people have a lot of joint pain, back pain. Some people have a lot of this combination of anxiety and tachycardia, fast heart rate. Some people have a lot of chest pain and cough, almost like an asthma picture. Some people have a lot of GI symptoms. So um, like I said, every patient is unique, but there are some kind of common clusters of symptoms, or some people may use the word phenotype for that, basically a cluster of symptoms. And so this is all still being studied. What is the biological basis of that? So speaking of, Let's talk briefly about the biological basis behind long COVID. And I'll acknowledge here that I am a clinician. I'm a clinician educator. I work in clinically in the intensive care unit in the COVID ICU, as well as in the outpatient clinic, as well as in the hospital on the medicine wards. Um, and my passion is education and education research. And so I collaborate very closely with the amazing scientists at UCSF and beyond, but I'm not a basic scientist, but I'll share with you some of their insights and hopefully an easy to understand manner. So as I mentioned, Dr. Mike Peluso here is an infectious disease doctor who runs this LINK study, the Long-Term Outcomes of Coronavirus Study. And that's investigating these long-term impacts of COVID in our Bay Area population. And they've actually followed over 300 patients. They've deeply phenotyped them. They've taken um, blood samples, you know, looking at their lung function, in some cases, looking at lumbar punctures, spinal taps. And he works with this huge team of amazing investigators across specialties. So collaborations with neurologists, collaborations with cardiologists, collaborations with mental health folks, collaborations with psychiatry, um, electrophysiology to look at the heart rhythm. And so there's a huge treasure trove of sort of patient information, patient data that they're all trying to analyze and sift through to try to help that next patient with COVID. And the other good news is that there are so many other ongoing trials. The NIH you may have heard of put out a huge funding call for over a billion dollars, that's right, B, um, looking at medical centers across the country. So UCSF and many medical centers across the country, we have all applied for that funding to study the long-term impact of coronavirus. This funding cycle was just announced in March. So everyone is still waiting to hear back, but I'm very optimistic that several UCSF researchers will get this funding. Heal COVID is a similar big funding effort that's going on in the UK. And this is a graphic from this nature paper, just showing a huge table of how many studies are ongoing as we speak, looking at ongoing um, therapies and treatments for long COVID. So, you know, where are we from a year ago? We've learned a lot. We still have a long way to go. And now with this infusion of NIH funding, I'm hopeful that at this time next year, we'll have even more updates to report. A lot has also been raised by, again, the patient community about how, and Dr. Fauci himself recognizes it, it's extraordinary how many people with COVID-19 have a post-viral syndrome that's very strikingly sim similar to myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. And so, as I mentioned, there is no one long COVID, but it's clear that some of our patients with long COVID seem to have overlapping symptoms to what's been called chronic fatigue syndrome or meet the criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome. And we'll come back to that when we talk about therapeutics. What is the reason behind all of these? Why are, is this happening? Um, why are people having symptoms in multiple organ systems throughout? Could it be any of these hypotheses that have been proposed by many smart scientists 
Could it be a direct toxicity of the virus onto the cells and perhaps lingering cellular damage afterwards? Could it be an immune dysregulation? Perhaps your immune system is firing all funky when it shouldn't be. Could there be autoantibodies at play? Could there be persistent viral reservoirs? And what that means is, could there be little pockets in your body or immune privilege sites where little pockets of virus might be hiding out where you can't really detect it? Could there be other hypotheses that we don't even know? All of these hypotheses are tantalizing. And again, because there is no one long COVID, I think it's going to be tough to get one explanation to account for all of these various patient presentations. Um, a lot of research is undergoing on all of these hypotheses and stay tuned. And we'll talk more about how potentially vaccines might play into this in just a bit. The other thing that I wanted to share with you is that PASS or long COVID, the post-acute sequelae of COVID is not equal to PICS. PICS is post-intensive care syndrome. But some similarities do exist and there are lessons to learn from post-intensive care syndrome. And this is graphically showing that, that there's this huge population, right? Millions of people recovering from COVID. And of that, only a small fraction are actually in the ICU and have PICS, post-intensive care syndrome. But why is PICS helpful to talk about? Why am I even bringing it up? Well, PICS is very helpful because it informs how we treat long COVID. So let's talk about that next. To, to establish, PICS is post-intensive care syndrome, which is a framework based on research done really in the 2000s and early 2010s, which really shows that survivors of critical illness have a variety of issues long after they leave the intensive care unit. And they really are in these four main domains, pulmonary or lung function, physical function, cognitive dysfunction, and mental health. And so this is a very holistic and systematic approach that really, as Dr. Tabus was referencing, talks about both the mind and the body, and it's very translatable to COVID. And the other reason this framework is translatable to COVID is that it pays attention to not just the patient, but also the caregivers and the family, um, and you know, asks about how they're doing, how's their mental health, how's their support. And so a PICS framework is a good way to start managing and treating a pretty unknown disease. So many long COVID clinics around the country, including ours, adopted this PICS framework. And we say, we acknowledge, again, not all of our COVID patients are going to have been in the ICU. However, just this way of thinking, of asking systematically about lung function, physical function, neurological function, and mental health is really important and holistic and provides a systematic way to treat patients very thoughtfully. And so you may have seen in the popular press lots of articles in Wall Street Journal, CNN, Vox, about these clinics popping up around the country. And a brief word about our clinic here at UCSF, the Optimal Clinic. It is a multidisciplinary clinic. It's housed in pulmonary, um, lung specialists like myself, who you see here. But we also have very tight-knit collaborations with geriatrics, like Dr. Witt here is trained in geriatrics. Psychiatry, we have two psychiatrists on staff. Um, integrative medicine, the Osher Center, Dr. Breeze Bell is our faculty champion in integrative medicine, who's been incredibly helpful with our patients with you know, long-term fatigue issues. And we also have close partnerships with cardiology, neurology, and a lot of nice synergy with our clinical 
um, impact and clinical infrastructure and follow-up, as well as our research facilities. And so Dr. Pelusa, who I mentioned, we talk all the time. We have a standing call to make sure that our optimal patients are going into his study and vice versa. If he sees somebody who comes to the study who's not plugged into medical care, he'll send them to our clinic. Um, so we just want to make sure that our patients are taking advantage of research if they're interested in participating. We try to see patients longitudinally throughout, um, about a month after their discharge from the hospital, three months, six months, nine months. This is the, what we set up at the beginning of the pandemic, and we quickly realized that some people, they may need just one or two visits, and then they're actually fine to return to their usual practice of primary care. Um, we're not meant to, su to supplant or replace primary care. It's an extra layer of support. And we saw that some people actually need to be seen more often to make sure that everything is okay. For now, we are seeing patients who are really admitted to the ICU or the ward because of our limited capacity. Um, we have an outpatient follow-up structure where we really have this hub and spoke model where we're a close tight-knit hub and we have a lot of collaborators, like I mentioned, integrative, cardio, uh, cardiology, electrophysiology, uh, pulmonary rehab, virtual support groups run by the Osher Center, um, psychiatry, behavioral health, infection control, and of course, the bedrock of it all in primary care. And so far in our clinic, we've seen over 300 patients. The demographic makeup reflects the demographics of patients who've been hospitalized at UCSF. We're also part of this national post-COVID, post-ICU organization called the Cairo organization, so that we get tips and advice and mentorship and support from other clinics like ours around the country, so we all know what's in the cutting edge to keep up. And we've also tried to pay it forward. We've tried to advise other institutions how to set up their own clinics. We wrote almost like our clinic protocol up in this journal article in CHEST to help other institutions start their own post-COVID clinic. And it's about once a week or even more that I am just jump on a call with other institutions to try to help them set up a similar pathway or try to figure out how to kind of cobble something together if they don't have a dedicated clinic like this nearby. So now we're getting into some of the things that, um, that, that will get into some of our questions for a little bit. So what are the US guidelines for treatment of long COVID? So there aren't great US guidelines yet, but the British Medical Journal and the British societies do have some good recommendations. And this is a wonderful, again, easy to read infographics article published in the British Medical Journal about management of long COVID. And they define it here, you'll notice it's slightly different. They say three weeks or more after. They talk about how there's a lot of uncertainty and I'll emphasize this in the Q&A that there is a lot that is uncertain that we don't know yet. Um, they talk a lot about managing the comorbidities that you know a patient has. They talk a lot about the importance of social, financial, and cultural support. And they talk about, you know, uh, what makes a good safety net process. When do you refer to cardiology or pulmonary or neurology or pulmonary rehab? They talk about the importance of mental health, peer support. And they talk about um, self-management, what a patient can do or a family member can do at home. Everything from back to the basics, right? Attention to sleep, limiting alcohol and smoking. They talk about this really important concept that we'll get back to of self-pacing. So the traditional medical model was really, you know, gradual aerobic exercise, just walk for five minutes and the next day walk for 10 minutes, the next day walk for 15 minutes. 
But we know from the similarity and the overlap between long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome that that can actually set people back. This phenomenon of post-exertional malaise where people feel more tired if they overexert themselves. So what we emphasize very much is this concept of self-pacing to really pace yourself and rest and avoid overexertion, setting achievable targets, using a pulse ox so that you know how your oxygen level is doing. And they talk about the importance of things like, you know, treating specific complications, listening and empathy. I'm gonna answer some of these questions live since they're relevant right here. Um, Corey Silver asks about if other infectious diseases in the past have included long-term aversions similar to COVID, and is this already being studied? This is a very good question. And interestingly, um, if you look at reports from, say, the, the earlier influenza pandemic earlier this century, there absolutely were reports of what people described as long-term symptoms, profound fatigue in some people recovering from influenza. They even had a different pandemic in the 1800s, and they reported that too. Um, measles is another example of a virus that has persistent symptoms, Ebola, Zika virus. So it's already known that certain viruses definitely have long-term impacts. And that's why it is um, critical to really study all of this and put it into context of what's known about other viral illnesses. So absolutely. Another question about people who've been dealing with symptoms for more than a year, do we know the odds of someone showing literally no improvement over that extended time period? is an anonymous question. That's a really good question. And I'm so sorry about that person who's seeing no improvement over a year. I will say, and I'll show you some literature showing that most people are improving. Um, I want to give you hope based on not just our experience, but also the research and the medical literature that the vast majority of people are improving over time. And so if people are not improving over a year, Again, and I'll come return to this concept that I would encourage people to think broadly about what else might be going on. And um, a great question from Heidi, hi Heidi, about have we seen a lot of patients with POTS and do we know the incidence of POTS among long COVID people? POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. We'll talk about that in just a bit, Heidi, um, but basically it's a phenomenon, otherwise it might be called and related to dysautonomia where some people have really severe um, increases in heart rate or drops in blood pressure, particularly with positional changes. So absolutely, Heidi, we're seeing a large proportion of patients with, a, I would say not large, a small but significant proportion of patients with POTS or dysautonomia after COVID. And I think, again, the studies are very all over the place for the reasons that I've mentioned already. They're not comparing apples to apples. They might be small. The recruitment strategies may be biased. So the actual incidence is unknown. These are great questions, so keep them coming. So returning to our framework, that was just a teaser of the general guidelines. We're just gonna take a couple more minutes to dive into each one of these four domains, pulmonary, physical, cognitive, and mental health, to just take a little deep dive. So what about pulmonary? What about persistent shortness of breath? There are so many different reasons for persistent shortness of breath in a person recovering from COVID-19. And this is a slide from my colleague, Dr. Kristen Schwab, who runs the post-COVID recovery clinic at UCLA. Um, and so we're close collaborators and colleagues. So I like this framework that she puts out that we need to think from kind of the most common to the least common and think about it systematically. And so most common, we see a lot of times, and many of you may have friends or family members who have this, you know that person who 
every winter, every flu season, after they get a cold, they have a hacking cough for like weeks to months. I would count myself in that category. So some people have kind of a post-viral reactive airways disease. And we see that with COVID too, that basically COVID is kind of unmasking or bringing out um, a little bit of airway issue, airway hyperreactivity or airway obstruction, as we call it. And the way to evaluate this is really to look at breathing tests. And the way to treat it is to think about different kinds of inhaler therapy. So that's one of the most common reasons that we see. And we often will treat it with inhalers and evaluate it with breathing tests. Deconditioning is a very important and common cause of persistent shortness of breath. So as Heidi brings up, many times people feel a sensation of shortness of breath. But interestingly, it's not actually that their oxygen is going down. It's actually that their heart rate is going way, way up. So we'll talk about this in a bit. So when you have this POTS, postural tachycardia or dysautonomia, or basically exertional tachycardia, fast heart rate, um, a lot of things need to be done to treat that deconditioning and dysautonomia. Sometimes for people, it's as simple as gradually building up their activity with, again, that concept of pacing, rest, and avoiding overexertion. So not just our usual, you know, regular aerobic exercise, it really has to be much more intentional with that focus on pacing and rest and building your strength back up with that. So some forms of pulmonary rehab and physical therapy have really adapted to this post-COVID patient population to think about that model with the lessons learned from chronic fatigue to avoid overexerting people, but still gradually building up their conditioning. Um, Organizing pneumonia is a rare entity. I just wanted to mention briefly that we think about if somebody who, you know, they were really sick in the hospital, they were on oxygen, and for some reason they just can't get off oxygen. So then you might get a chest CAT scan, which shows this organizing pneumonia pattern, which is one of the rare causes or indications where actually steroids are helpful in the chronic setting. For most people, we're using steroids up front for acute treatment, but there's not really a role for chronic steroids. Organized pneumonia is this one very rare exception, and people are usually quite sick on oxygen. Post-ARDS fibrosis, that's a lot of words. Um, ARDS is acute respiratory distress syndrome, basically lung scarring and fibrosis from severe COVID pneumonia, uh, which has some specific categories. This is really a minority of patients. It really is in the study so far between one to 5%. So most people fortunately won't have this, but we are seeing this in our patients with say prolonged ICU stays. We're sick for weeks to months on the ventilator. And then lastly, PVD is pulmonary vascular disease, which is blood clots, tiny little blood clots throughout. Um, and that's actually quite rare when you look systematically. We also think about things like reflux, pleuritis, inflammation of the lining of the lung neuromuscular disease, so weakness from that, uh, vocal cord issues, trachea, your windpipe issues, whether it's too narrow, stenosis, or too floppy, tracheomalacia. Um, and those are often related to, again, very long times of being on the ventilator. So pulmonary issues, we, we're pivoting a little bit from that to physical therapy, physical issues. So the American College of Physical Therapists, the American Physical Therapy Association, and many other organizations have actually put together these great guidances on, you know, recovering from, from work, recovering from COVID. How do you return to work? How do you return to athletic activity for the previously healthy athlete? Things like that. And this is a graphic that I go over a lot with patients, which again, visually shows this concept of rest and pacing, that you don't just go up, 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 up. 
you know, walk five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It's not that simple. You really have to very gradually adapt to a new load. And only then would you very gradually increase your activity. You do a lot of listening to your body, pacing yourself and resting. Um, and again, these are our lessons learned from chronic fatigue. Johns Hopkins uh, Physical Medicine and Rehab has a great patient guide, patient and family guide called Bouncing Back from COVID, Your Guide to Restoring Movement. So again, I encourage any of you to check this out. It's a wonderful little booklet that's written in easy to understand language that really talks about these concepts. It talks about breathing exercises, how you can get back to um, slowly towards normalcy. So moving on from physical functioning to cognitive functioning. This is a huge issue in the long-term impacts of COVID-19. As many as one in five patients, sometimes in some studies, one in three are reporting persistent cognitive issues. And again, the mechanism, the biological basis is still a bit of a mystery. There could be immunologic causes like autoantibodies, um, maladaptive autoimmune response, maladaptive cytokines or inflammation. Or it could be related to things like hypotension, low blood pressure, hypoxia, low oxygen, micro or macro thrombosis or blood clots in the brain. Um, and so there also we can see, as you see here on this side, that some patients are going to have predominantly kind of neuropsychiatric issues. Some people are going to have a lot of cerebrovascular issues like strokes and things like that. And it really depends on the age group where we're seeing different versions of these. And again, the studies for this are absolutely still ongoing to find out which of these mechanisms or a combination are at play. The other thing to know in our lessons from PICS, from post-intensive care syndrome, is that depression, cognitive issues, and disability are very closely intertwined. And we have to be mindful of that and treat all of those in tandem. Um, you see here in this graph that people, again, pre-COVID who are surviving a, an ICU stay often will have depression, cognitive impairment, disability, or all of the above, both at three months and even at 12 months after recovery from ICU stay. And we're seeing similar numbers in COVID um, now as we're looking at this over time. So it just emphasizes the importance of a very holistic, multidisciplinary team approach in this case. The other thing to be wary of is that Dr. Wes Eli is one of the nation's leading experts on the effects of COVID on the brain. And he says, quote, COVID is a delirium factory. And what that means is that already being in the hospital, especially if you're older, if English is not your first language, if you're very sick and frail, already being in the hospital is at baseline a very stressful experience. And people can be prone to this thing called delirium, where their mental function, their mental status kind of waxes and wanes. It goes up and down. They can, this can be prolonged for a really long time. And COVID has made this so much worse. It is awful. You basically now have that older, frail, non-English speaking person, put them in a room by themselves, no family visitors, difficult to access video interpreters, you can't see any of your doctors or nurses or physical therapists because they're wearing the full PPE. You could barely see their eyes. They're not coming in as often as they used to, perhaps. Um, it's just a nightmare. It's a setup for getting worse in delirium. And this is a story in the New York Times from one of our UCSF patients who spoke to the New York Times about how terrifying these hallucinations and this delirium was. 
he says, quote, they want to kill me. That's how he felt being in the ICU. Um, and this is a very common experience with our patients who are hospitalized, particularly in the ICU with severe delirium. And that can take a long time to recover from. And some studies show actually delirium can even increase your mortality. So how do we help in these situations, particularly with this importance of the mind-body connection? We have a very close relationship with our psychology and psychiatry colleagues, such that every single patient who comes to Optimal is seen by a mental health specialist. We talk a lot about reassuring people, listening to their fears, talking about coping strategies. We do a lot of peer support with that virtual support group through the Osher Center that I mentioned. We assess if they actually need, you know, medications for new depression, anxiety, PTSD, or therapy. We talk a lot, especially in the pre-vaccine era, about loneliness, about social isolation, about safe socializing and logistics around that, particularly for our older adults who are dealing with this. Dr. Parasinoto is one of our leading geriatrics researchers at UCSF who talks a lot about the science of loneliness in elderly folk and how this was made so much worse during COVID. Now, a hot question up ahead. What about vaccines? Um, some people may have heard that they might be a cure for long COVID. And the latest, the take home really is that they definitely don't hurt and maybe they could be even helpful. This is an article from Annals of Internal Medicine, literally published today, hot off the presses. And it shows that here in dark green, some people are reporting symptoms that are improved. Um, the light green is people who are reporting that symptoms are unchanged. And you see a very tiny minority in this like light gray say their symptoms worsened. And I'll say anecdotally seeing our patients, most patients say they feel about the same. And there are a couple that say maybe the vaccine actually helped them. Maybe they feel better after the vaccine. So we recommend that everyone who's had COVID, well, we recommend that everyone who's eligible, please, please get your vaccine. If this hour-long talk wasn't a PSA for the vaccine, I don't know what else could be uh, because you don't want long COVID. And so even if you have long COVID, if you've had COVID in the past, we definitely recommend the vaccine. Um, it may even help you. It definitely can't hurt. And it's important to prevent rare, but it happens, reinfection. And the immunity, the antibody response that you get from the vaccine is actually higher and more persistent, uh, more stable than the immunity you get from natural infection. So we definitely recommend the vaccine for everyone, including people who've had COVID in the past. And hey, it may even, may even help the symptoms. Um, why would it help? Does that even make sense? And this goes back to our hypothesis. What is the biological basis of long COVID? And again, maybe this is direct viral toxicity and the vaccine is somehow helping with that. Perhaps it is helping with the autoantibody response. Perhaps it's dealing with a persistent viral reservoir. We just don't know. So leading immunologist, Dr. Akiko Iwasaki at Yale, she is actually studying as we speak if vaccines are helping with long COVID. And she is doing a very rigorous immunological study looking at people who've got the vaccine, what is their immunologic response to the vaccine? How does it affect long COVID symptoms? And so that study out of Yale is recruiting now. And so this is an active area of study. Again, based initially on just anecdote, patient observation, people hearing about so-and-so actually felt a lot better after getting the vaccine. I think the final kind of key point that I'll leave you with is that, again, returning to this concept of all that long hauls is not COVID. 
and that patients and doctors and friends and family should keep your mind open that avoiding that anchoring bias, avoiding assuming that this is COVID and keep that differential diagnosis broad throughout. Um, I personally and my colleagues in our clinic have diagnosed people with metastatic cancers, different types. I mentioned that inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, postpartum depression, thyroid issues, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is kind of an allergic lung reaction. We have diagnosed all of these in patients where either the patient themselves or their provider assumed it's all just long COVID, and it wasn't. And so I think, especially if you've recovered from COVID or you know someone who has, and they're experiencing a new medical issue, do not assume that it's related and go get medical attention to see if it could be something else to think broadly, avoid that anchoring bias and keep your differential broad throughout. I wanted to end with a really brief video here, we started with the video and I wanted to end with a video. And this is a video from one of our patients who was in the ICU who made an ama amazing recovery. He was truly one of these people who is on death's door. Um, super, super sick, critically ill, was in the ICU for weeks to months and has made an amazing recovery and has given permission to share clips of an interview with the UCSF community. So we'll go to this video briefly. Um, he's talking about his recovery and how he was super sick he was in the ICU, he went to rehab, and now how he feels coming out at the end of all this. Polar opposite. Um, I, I've already expressed to you and every doctor I've, I spoke to on the um, phone or Zoom or in person, the nurses at your hospital are, they're angels. They are, they're, they're some of the most amazing people that we and my family has ever met. They've been um, like, like sisters to my, my wife, um, my, my children. Um, to me, they were um, really sweet. They always cracked jokes and, and made, made me feel like, um, just like a human being again. Um, and that, that, that was hard to do when I woke up because I couldn't move my hands and my feet. And you, know, you wake up thinking that you're paralyzed because you don't know anything different. You don't know your, your family, you don't know your kids, you don't know your wife. Um, um, and that, that was, to them, who knows that? Who knows how hard that was? But they know how much I love them. Um, I may come across sometimes right now, uh, very angry, um, just because everything's been taken away. Um, but they, they know, they know down deep down inside what they mean to me. And I don't know what, I have no clue what they went through. Um, we talked about it a little bit and she just said, you know what, this is just what you do. Um, so that was just a brief clip from our um, interview with our patient talking about his amazing recovery, a journey of hope and recovery and resilience and talking about, you know, waking up in the ICU paralyzed and, you know, not knowing, not knowing what's going to happen, how the nurses helped him with this recovery process. So our take home points. You know, the care of patients with long COVID or past post-acute sequelae of COVID, this is new and evolving. And we really need a comprehensive, multidisciplinary approach to address these long-term physical, pulmonary, cognitive, and mental health symptoms. And a lot of uncertainty still remains, but there's a lot of research ongoing that's going to help us inform next steps. Um, I also have huge gratitude to our amazing multidisciplinary optimal team everyone from the pulmonary docs to our nurses, physical therapy, psychiatry, integrative medicine, cardiology. Um, a special shout out to my partner in crime, Brian Block, who the two of us have seen the majority of these patients because we have the most clinic. Um, Dr. Peluso, who I mentioned, who runs the coronavirus long-term impact study out of the general. 
Dr. Nita Tucker, who I mentioned, who runs a parallel clinic that we help set up at the general to see patients hospitalized at the general. Um, my colleagues, Dr. Brigham and Parker from Johns Hopkins, who helped us give us advice in setting up our clinic modeled after their clinic. Our amazing ICU colleagues, especially the nurses, respiratory care practitioners, physical therapists, occupational therapists, they are just heroes, truly, who help our patients day in and out. And my amazing patients and their families and my family. These are my two kiddos. Um, they're now, uh, one is two and one is three. And this is a picture of them waiting patiently every day after I came back from the ICU or from clinic, I would take my COVID decontamination shower and they would wait really patiently to give me a hug when I came home after I took that shower. And I'm very thankful to them for supporting me. Um, so I hope that in this talk, we were able to cover sort of what is long COVID, who gets it, a brief look into what is the biology behind it and how do we treat it. And I'm delighted that we now have some time right on time for some questions and answers. Please feel free to email me, find me on social media. Thank you so much for taking an evening, a precious evening away uh, from your free time to come and listen today. And I'm really appreciative of the questions that you have and thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Santos. Santos, amazing talk. And uh, um, we need more physicians like you who are doing great work for us. Um, there are some more questions in the Q&A. One of our uh, attendees asked, with obesity being associated so much with COVID's worse outcomes, are the data on long-term patients similarly, similarly related to weight issues? This is a really good question. So one of the paradoxes of long COVID is that, and again, part of it is that the literature is a bit tricky to interpret, is that there's a little bit of a disconnect of who gets sick and hospitalized and who might have persistent symptoms. So we know, as I mentioned, the people who have been hit the hardest by this, who are sick and hospitalized are our elderly patients, our patients of color, particularly black patients and Latinx patients. And then paradoxically, in when we look at the long COVID studies, a lot of them tend to be actually, and then patients with obesity, as you've mentioned, um, tend to be more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to have severe illness. And then patients with long COVID, interestingly, there's a slight predisposition towards female sex rather than male sex in the acute setting. There's a slight predisposition towards Caucasian race rather than people of color. And the BMI is actually interesting. There are actually some studies showing that people of normal BMI may perhaps have worse long COVID afterwards. And again, these studies are all so messy. They're so hard to interpret. I'm hoping for better quality studies here to come. Um, so stay tuned. I think the complexity of obesity, weight, inflammation, um, hormones, right? Sex and hormones, it is all still being evaluated. So this is a really good question. I would say we don't really know. Thanks for your question. Thank you. So um, we heard when we asked uh, a previous speaker about um, the incidence of getting COVID and needing to be hospitalized, needing ICU, and then dying, um, if they could comment on that, they, they pointed out, just like you're pointing out, it's so messy because it depends on the population and earlier in the in the pandemic, it was older patients and now it's younger patients. So I'm, I'm wondering, you mentioned you collaborate closely with a um, long COVID clinic um, at UCLA. 
is there any network across the country where where you know the leaders of these clinics are are collaborating and sharing data or what's uh, being set up or worked on as far as that this is a great question dr tabas and the short answer is i wish <laughs> and we're working on it so what we what we did is that you know sadly the political realities come into play here it's all it is all tied up into this, the, the climate of the time, right? So now we're seeing NIH funding, this huge funding push towards long COVID, which is great, which a lot of researchers are saying, we needed this funding last year to study patients as they were coming out last year. And now it's March of 2021 rather than March of 2020. So similarly for the networks, um, the national, uh, you know, I've done some advocacy with members of Congress as well to advocate for a national reliable network and in the absence of government taking, you know, taking that national stand to form that national network, you see that it's actually the patients and the community that stepped up. So actually patient websites like Body Politics, Survivor Corps, COVID SOS actually have pretty good lists of where are the long COVID clinics and who's running them. So, you know, I found my, my own name and our clinic on one of those websites. So we are urging the, the nation to actually coordinate the response a little bit better. In the meantime, what have we done? Certainly there's research collaboration networks, but they're kind of ad hoc, you know, it depends on often pre-existing research networks. So in ARDS, basically studying lung scarring and fibrosis, huge ARDS research networks thankfully did pivot to COVID. And so UCSF is part of a lot of those national trials of huge networks where they said, we were studying this lung scarring condition, we're gonna pivot to COVID, which is great. Um, and an exciting update, just a few weeks ago, I helped organize actually a California Thoracic Society Summit, where I invited, just as you said, the leaders of UCLA clinic, UCSD clinic, and actually clinic leaders around at least California, um, who we've informally formed our own California network throughout the pandemic and been talking and sharing experiences throughout. So we did a California Thoracic Society Summit to actually bring us all together just recently, and we've been talking throughout and we're actually working with CDPH to see how could we formalize that structure and get more support to continue that going on. So it's not just a, you know, collaborators of Lakshmi kind of network. And so stay tuned. I think it's going to happen in a more formal way. In the meantime, I mentioned Cairo. Cairo is the critical illness recovery group. That really is a national network of post ICU clinics. But many of those clinics are also kind of long COVID clinics. So that has been a great source of peer support to us during this time as well, learning from those centers. Well, fantastic. We need to uh, have you keep up your energy to keep up all these endeavors. And thank your children for supporting you on this as well. Yes. Um, right? <laughs> Without them, their support, it's even tougher. Um, Someone, uh, an anonymous attendee asks, um, and, and this gets at uh, a big problem in our healthcare system, patients struggling with being seen and believed as they pre present with symptoms, struggling with insurance carriers, medical providers, employers. Do you think our healthcare system's properly sensitive to patients, especially all they've been through? Or might uh, provider burnout make that even harder as well? Because, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of access is dependent on, you know, the sensitivity of your providers. And I'm sure you're giving talks to doctors all over to try and sensitize them. But what's your take on on how difficult that's been for some of the patients you've seen? 
This is so difficult. Um, that is a huge part of my chats with patients is telling them, I believe you and listening and validating their experience. I have heard so many horror stories that just bring me to tears of what patients have been through, um, you know, being dismissed. This is all in your head, um, you know, get over it. You should be better by now. And I've had the unfortunate experience also of caring for a number of healthcare workers, you know, physicians, nurses, other healthcare workers who are experiencing this too. And so the stigma, particularly earlier in the pandemic, there was not only the stress of COVID, but also the stigma around it, which is magnified mm. in healthcare workers too. Uh, that, you know, oh, how did you get it? You know, you, you weren't being safe. And this judgment, the societal judgment and stigma and shame around it. So absolutely, unfortunately, I think, especially early in the pandemic, people were being dismissed. And we know that um, that dismissal is can more affect uh, our women patients, our patients of color as well. And so unconscious bias can play a role too. So I think there's a lot more awareness now as more research comes up, but we have a long way to go. And I think you know, the medical community is certainly catching up, but I definitely, I definitely hear and my heart goes out to people who have felt that they weren't being heard, they weren't being listened to, that they were being discriminated against. So I tell people, you're not alone. And having that um, experience, you know, seeing someone who's at a center where they have that experience, where they say, you know, the smell thing, I know so many other patients who have the smell thing this headaches, COVID headache. I know a bunch of people have that. That's very reassuring to patients that like, wow, it's not in my head. There's other people going through this. This person can help me. And even though there's not a magic pill yet to cure long COVID, at least we can try to aggressively manage the symptoms, connect them with other patients, other resources, and try to help in whatever way we can. Right. It's, 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 you know, it's really similar to many aspects of medicine. If there's no diagnostic test or your CAT scan is negative, we say there's nothing wrong. But it's not that there's nothing wrong. It's that we don't know what it is. That's so. exactly right. It's a high area of uncertainty. And that's really hard for both providers to communicate well. And it can also be really a place of frustration and desperation for patients and families when they hear that I don't know from the provider. So I definitely, um, it's so challenging. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic that you're running this clinic. Um, have there been reports of lingering post-COVID ophthalmologic symptoms, for example, uveitis? This is a great question. And I will say that, you know, I showed the different organ systems that were commonly afflicted. And of course, there are also the uncommonly afflicted organs, right? You may have heard of COVID toes or strange skin rashes or things like that. So I think ophthalmologic issues fall into that uncommon symptom um, category where definitely it's rare, but it can happen. And I would defer to an ophthalmology specialist about the specifics of, you know, say uveitis. But I think the same principles apply that it may be associated with COVID. However, because it's rare, I would take a fresh eye at that because there's a lot of conditions associated with uveitis, including rheumatologic conditions, inflammatory bowel disease, um, other primary eye issues. So I just ask, again, think twice before assume, assuming it's related to COVID. It may be, but you got to exclude the other things first, other causes of uveitis. Fantastic advice. Um, similar to the rarity of post-vaccination infections, is it true that uh, those that 
similar to the Verity, huh? I think they're referring to you can get reinfected. Um, can you get, uh, and we know you can get post-vaccination infections. What's the frequency of reinfection in someone who's had it? This is a great question. So I think there's a lot of media attention right now about these breakthrough infections, right? Um, who gets a breakthrough infection after two doses if they've been fully vaccinated? And fortunately, thankfully, this is quite rare, right? You may have heard the stats of like one in a million quote. And I just saw some good stats on this from CDC just today. They found that a big proportion of these breakthrough infections are actually asymptomatic, about a third, and that a, a tiny minority are actually sick enough to be hospitalized. And of the people who are hospitalized, this is new data that I saw today, even the people who are hospitalized, about a third it was thought to be either asymptomatic or unrelated to COVID. It was kind of incidentally found. not They were not hospitalized because of COVID. So it's quite rare. Breakthrough infections do happen, but it's quite rare. We are particularly worried about our transplant patients, our severely immunocompromised patients. You know, We've seen reports, pretty good evidence that the vaccine may have a little bit lower antibody response in those groups. So I definitely urge caution for those groups. Whether the breakthrough infections are associated with long COVID is a bit TBD, but from what we've seen, breakthrough infections are super rare. Of the super rare infections that there are, they're often asymptomatic. And so ergo, we think, but we don't know yet for sure, we think that the long COVID related to these is going to be very, very rare, kind of a rare outcome of a rare outcome. But it's a great question, and I think time will tell. Um, there's a question from Narita Vlach. Can you recommend some support groups online for long COVID patients, also for Spanish-speaking patients? This is a great question. Um, so the OSHA Center here, we have a free support group that we run here through the UCSF OSHA Center. It's run by two of our doctors who practice in integrative medicine, neurology, psychiatry, palliative care. So there's just two people, but they have all of those specialties in just those two people represented. And they have run such a wonderful free fully virtual support group, which is online for long COVID patients that my patients have loved. Again, support groups are not for everyone. Uh, some patients provide, derive immense support for them. For Spanish-speaking patients, that's a great question too, especially because we have a big Latinx community. So California DPH, in general, for resources related for Spanish-speaking patients, California DPH has actually a number of great Spanish language um, resources for things like housing, support, advice, things like that on the CDPH website. In terms of Spanish-speaking support groups specifically, I'll have to get back to you on that. I'm sure they exist because um, long COVID is not just an American phenomenon. And a lot of these support groups that you see on social media, particularly like Body Politics, Survivor Corps, Long COVID SOS are actually international. So you'll see people are posting on, on the Facebook group or on the Slack channel in multiple languages. So I will look into this um, and try to find out about some Spanish-speaking support groups that exist for our patients. Um, it's a great question. I, I want to know the answer and get back to you. Thank you. That's great. And uh, we've had... Um a previous uh, talk on community engagement and the work in the mission. We might uh, reach out to them as well for some um, uh, Spanish language support groups, but definitely- In fact, you've given me a great idea. Like I mentioned, I helped Dr. Talker's group establish the ZSFG Long COVID Clinic. And one of our fellow yeah. trainees is actually 
um, taken an interest in that clinic. I might even recruit her to think about, about starting a, a support group for Spanish-speaking patients. So you've given me a great idea. So thank you. Fantastic. Look at that. Our audience is impacting care. Love it. Love it. Um, have you seen any children yet with long COVID? I know we're seeing very, very low rates of infection, and it seems to be very mild in children in general. But have you seen any um, any long any children with long COVID symptoms? This is a great question, and this is one where I will definitely say, um, unfortunately, I am an adult medicine doctor, and so. I can't really speak outside of my expertise about kids and long COVID. So when I do get these questions, I refer to our local expert at UCSS, at UCSF, Dr. Ted Ruel, R-U-E-L, is kind of our leading peds infectious disease expert about uh, long COVID and COVID in kids. So I did talk with him a couple of times about setting up a similar structure actually for kids with persistent symptoms. It is much rare, but it does exist. And I've definitely fielded a lot of queries about that. And I always uh, refer them to Dr. Ruel. Um, and as you know, there's a lot of people talking outside of their expertise during this pandemic. So I definitely try to stick to my expertise and refer appropriately to my colleagues um, um, for these pediatric type questions. But thank you for your question. I wish I knew, but Dr. Rule is the expert on that. Perfect, perfect. So you're not gonna comment on the efficacy of sunlight as a therapy for COVID, no? I'm okay. actually glad you mentioned that. I, oh, I should have put a slide on that. Um, I, I, I thought about it, but I forgot um, that there, this is the trouble with this uncertainty that's going on is that where there's uncertainty, that's where the snake oil peddlers come out in full force and people are marketing bogus cures for long COVID. Um, and so I've had patients who've been actually asking quite seriously, again, out of that place of uncertainty and desperation and hope. Um, I've had patients ask me about, you know, IV vitamin C, different IV supplements, um, different tanning beds, ozone, saunas, steaming those kind of therapies and so and and i always say gosh you know i wish ivermectin hydroxychloroquine even even recently people still are asking about it and so i will say that none of those therapies just to name them out loud have any evidence for it and can even be harmful so beware be wary of where you consume medical evidence there's a lot of medical misinformation out there, unfortunately, particularly on social media. And so all of those are a no. I'm glad you mentioned it because I did want to make that point. Um, and I hope that FDA actually will do a better job of kind of cracking down a little bit on some of those unfounded marketing claims because patients and families just want help and they will turn to um, whatever looks like it's helpful. And unfortunately, that's where these snake oil peddlers come in. So if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. I even see this unfolding right now in India where I have you know, friends and family and relatives where it's, it's similar thing. People have talked about steam inhalation as curing COVID or saying, you know, don't take the vaccine or therapies because there's a better therapy coming down the pike in just a few months. And so there's a lot of misinformation out there. So be cautious, particularly of what you read on social media and vet it with your doctor or your provider. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much. Any last questions? Uh, we have we have a last question here. Are specific variants being tracked? Oh, this is a great question for long COVID frequency. What a great question. 
That's a really good question. So I will say that um, at UCSF, we're really fortunate to have these brilliant genomics researchers. Two of them to name names are Dr. Charles Chu and Dr. Do Joe DeRisi. And they're the ones with the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub and other collaborations that do a lot of the sequencing to find out the variants. These same research networks are also involved in looking at and helping with connect with Link and the other studies that I mentioned for long-term coronavirus. So as far as we know, the variants, some of the variants that you hear about in the news, like the strain from, you know, that's predominant in the UK, the strain that's predominant in India, the strain that's predominant in South Africa, a lot of these variants, particularly the named variants, they tend to be more transmissible if what we found, more infectious, but the does that correlate with severity? Does that correlate with long COVID? Not necessarily. So there's a strong signal that a lot of those variants are more infectious, but not necessarily correlated with severity or long COVID and active research being done, not necessarily on that specific question, but looking at both of those two processes in parallel and hopefully fusing the insights. That's a great summary. Thank you. So thank you again. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to speak to all of us. And um, we, uh, we, we wish you the best of luck in solving all of these enigmas in uh, the care of these patients. And uh, thank you again for all you're doing. And thanks to our audience for participating, great questions, and just being part of this community that's learning more about these, this whole pandemic. Thank you all for having me and for your great questions. And um, please go out there and get vaccinated so that we can end this pandemic quickly. Thank you for your time. Take care now. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.